We're going to have a little fun this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are certain genres of movies that I like a lot. I love Western movies. I love, you know, I love science fiction and stuff like that. But one of my favorite types of movies is spy movies. How many of you all like spy movies? All right, we're going to have a little test. You know, there, there's some obvious ones here. Um, who is this spy here? James Bond. That's right. Now, just, just as a poll question, who's your favorite Bond? I mean, oh, Sean Connery. So, okay, so it's going to be like that then, huh? All right. Yeah, I, you know, I will say, you know, I, I love James, I, I love all the Bonds. Special credit to any, extra credit to anybody who can name this one here. Who was that? George Lazenby. He was like in one of them. I think, I, I forget which one it was, but yeah, he, um, uh, no one Casino Royale, I don't think. It was, uh, it was like one of the middle ones. I think he was a, he, he was like a, uh, maybe, he, he was like a Bond 007.1 or something like that. But, um, but you know, I, I, I think, I, you know, of course, everybody loves Sean Connery. I, I really do like Daniel Craig. You know, he's, he's contemporary, a little edgy, I think kind of a grittier James Bond. But I will say that to my favorite, still all time has to be, because he's the one that was really the Bond when I was growing up, was Roger Moore. Now, and I say, and, and, and I'm not, you know, I understand the differences. I understand why people like some and the others. I, for me, Roger Moore was the James Bond when James Bond really became sort of like a, a campy thing. You know, still a little serious under, you know, Sean Connery, still somewhat realistic. With Roger Moore, it kind of went over the top. You know, it's like that's when you really got the, you know, it, I mean, Moonraker. I mean, that, that, was a, that was a movie about, you know, when. When a guy hijacks the whole space shuttle program and tries to blow up the world, that's real super villainy. Um, so you know, but but it doesn't matter. We all know who James Bond is, but there are other you know movie spies. Um, you know the the uh, you know I don't know how many of you all used to watch The Americans. Did anybody watch The Americans? The Americans was a, this is Carrie Russell. She played one of the Russian spies in The Americans. That was about these deeply embedded uh, KGB agents who basically were who were introduced to American society in their early 20s and actually grew up, had a family, all this kind of stuff, but they were always deep, deep, uh, deeply embedded Russian agents. For those of you who are like, like the more uh, comic book Marvel Universe spies, does anybody know who this is? Natasha Romanoff, Black Widow, you know, that's, that's, on the, the, that's one that, you know, my kids, would start, when they think spy, they think about her as well. And then, of course, there's, you know, from my college years, there's Austin Powers, one of the greatest spies of all time. I mean, you, you all may know, know others, some other names. That, what, what are some, who are some other spies that, that come up when you're thinking about that genre? Nobody mentioned Maxwell Smart. Does anybody remember Get Smart? Absolutely. Remember James West when they tried to combine spy, you know, like James Bond with like westerns. I mean, that was that was always kind of fun. There, you know, those are great, uh, you know, great uh, examples. But one of the things, I, one of the lines I remember, and I, I can't remember, it was out of one of the Bond films. But uh, one, of, I think at one point, the the villain asks, uh, uh, you know, asks, you know, Bond the question, you know, who was the greatest spy. You know, and, and you know, Bond, you know, very coyly answers, you know, doesn't say anything. But the answer is, it's the one you never know is a spy. You know, it's the person who never, who never gets caught, who ne you never know that they're there. And that's, and I think that's true. So the whole idea of being a famous spy is really sort of an oxymoron. You don't want to be a famous spy. You want to be somebody who is, who is secretive about their existence. But you know, we have. 
you know, th this is a part of our culture. We think, you know, this, especially for those of us who really grew up in the Cold War era, you know, the whole idea of, of spies and these exotic things happening, this is, this is all something that we're, we're a part of. Well, well today we're going to be talking about one of the most, I think, one of the best spy stories in history. And that is what happens right at the beginning of the book of Joshua. And I want to kind of introduce it in this way. You know, in the James Bond movies, you've always got James Bond, and in every different movie, he's got what? A specific, beautiful, you know, beautiful woman who is, for that movie, kind of is not just his love interest, but always, you know, sometimes often a partner in it. So you've always got the Bond, you've got Bond and the Bond girl, right? Well, in this story, it's kind of a reverse of the normal in that, in that our hero is really the Bond girl. I mean, she is the one who, who really is the important one here, and her name is Rahab. So we're looking at chapter 2 of Joshua, and we're going to just get right into this. But it's fascinating that the book of Joshua, in many ways, after his commissioning, starts with a spy story. And really, in some ways, the whole book of Joshua, 40 years earlier, started with a spy story, didn't it? It started with a group of 12 spies who were sent into the land, and two of them came back with a positive report. All of them, actually, all of them came back with a positive report, but only two of them came back with any confidence that God would take them into the land. And now, here we are again at the beginning of Joshua with another spy story. And let's look at how this starts. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And as I was studying this, it was fascinating, all these little connections. Numbers, the, 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 main, the main story in Numbers, Kadesh Barnea, is a spy story. The first story of Joshua is a spy story. And what was Joshua? How did Joshua come to fame? He was one of those two spies, right? I mean, he, I mean, he was the 007 of his day. He was the guy who went in and, you know, and, and can, remember this, remember that story, snuck around for 40 days taking notes, you know, taking microfilm pictures, I mean, all that kind of stuff, doing, gathering the intelligence on the land. And so as a careful leader and now a seasoned military commander, he's moved from being a field agent to one of the suits up in, in the MI5 office. You know, he's, he's the guy who's in charge now. He's the Admiral Halsey over the, you know, over the, um, over the Jack Ryan now. He's the one who, who is now calling the shots, and he knows that they have to get a good eye on the land. They have to know what they're up against. Even though they know God has said, I have given you this victory, Joshua is a careful leader. He is one who wants to prepare and be thoughtful about the people under his command because, because that's what a leader does. You don't just think, what is it going to take me to win? You ask yourself, what is this going to cost my people? What is this going to cost our team? And Jesus even says in, uh, in Luke chapter 14, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? That's what Joshua was doing. Even though he knew that his mission was to take the land, and even though he knew that God was going to be with them, he also knew that it was going to be hard. And he was a veteran of battles, and he knows that there is a real human cost in every one of these types of situations. So Joshua said, we're going to go, we're going to measure, we're going to be prepared so that we make sure that we glorify God in all of this. And so he sent his spies into the land. Now, excuse me, um, 
This is basically the route that they took. Shatim is this, this campsite, this area right here on the east side of the Jordan River. And then across the plain of Jordan is Jericho. And he sent them from here to here. Not all that far of a trip, but if you're on foot, much farther. But the idea was you're going to go across the Jordan, you're going to go to Jericho, and you're going you're to check out the land. Now, why Jericho? Why was Jericho important? Well, Jericho uh, has several interesting sort of characteristics. Number one, it may be, archaeologists sort of quibble from site to site, but Jericho is one of the, if not the oldest city, human city, that goes by certain definitions, that has been discovered. One of the, most, uh, one of the oldest, most continually inhabited spots in an already ancient part of the world. And so people have been living in Jericho for a long, long time. They had been living there, and they, have, and they are still living there and around. So this is an important place. Why? Because it's this crossroads. It was, a, you know, it was an important point. It was an important crossroads for commerce, an important co crossroads for communication, for culture, all of these different things. This was an important place, an important city. If, if Israel is kind of the crossroads of this region, Jericho is in many ways in that, in that central area, kind of a crossroads for the city. The region as well. But another thing is that it was a fortified city. I mean, it, wouldn't that be a lousy little Sunday school song if there were no walls to come a tumbling down? I mean, why would the, the walls come a tumbling down? Because there were big walls. Now, one of the things we have to understand about, you know, about a castle, because we always think of a castle or a fortress as a defensive type of structure, don't we? We think you build, you build walls to protect yourself. In the ancient world, militarily speaking, castles were not necessarily just thought of as defensive, they were thought of as offensive weapon systems. So the idea was that you would conquer into an area and then build a castle. And then, you would conquer, then from there you would send out raiding parties, armies and all to go and extend the borders even more. You know, we don't think about castles like that because we think of them as what? We think of them as static. You, you, you set up shop here, you build your walls, and these walls then protect you. And, and we, you know, we, so we don't think about a castle as something that moves around, because it doesn't. I mean, a castle doesn't move, unless you put it on water and you call it something like an aircraft carrier. What is, what's the purpose of an aircraft carrier? The purpose of an aircraft carrier is to project power. You move it into an area and then you send your, your pilots, your sorties out from there to project power into an area. That's why a, an aircraft carrier is such a, a critical weapon system. A castle did the same thing. They didn't, they, you can't do that on land. They weren't going to make this huge caterpillar crawling tank. But what they did is they built a castle, you jump out from there. You build another fortress, you jump out from there. It's a way to extend your power. And so Jericho was not just a place, it was not just built defensively, it was a place that projected power. And so it was dangerous. So this is a military city. Remember when the, the, the original spies went into the land, they saw giants, they saw mighty men, they saw warriors, they saw fortified cities. This was a threat. And so, so Jericho had, I mean, in many ways, it was the key, or at least the first big obstacle that the Israelites had to deal with. And so Joshua sent his, his spies in to check out Jericho. What are their strengths? What are their numbers? What, you know, what's their disposition? Are they ready? Now one of the things we're going to find out is, yeah, they were probably ready. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But what did they do? They went, 
to the house, they went into town and they went to the house of Rahab. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and we lodged there. Put a pen in the word prostitute, we will come back to that. But now, you may think, why would they go into the house of a prostitute to, you know, to, you know first thing when they got into town? Was it just because it was a long trip? No. It was because this was an inn, a tavern, you know, house of ill repute. Who goes there? Well, everybody. Travelers, you know, both, both respectable and non-respectable. Um, soldiers, you know, people go there to drink. What happens when people drink? Talk. You can gather a lot of information there. So, in many ways, it, I mean, it, it makes sense for them to go and start hanging around a bar, hanging around a, a, a cat house, hanging around, a, you know, this, this place, because that's a great place to gather information about, you know, about the city, its disposition, its defenses, all of these things. What's the, what's the liability of it? Think about all those Western movies. The guy rides into town, walks into the saloon. What's the first thing that happens? The piano stops. Everybody turns around and looks. They always notice the stranger. And so even though you can go and you can gather information in this spot, you're also going to get noticed. And, and it makes me wonder, I mean, here's, here's Joshua, who by this point had to have had a re reputation as a master spy, was in, was in Canaan for 40 days, never got caught. These guys are made their first night. People, people, the people at Jericho realize there is somebody here that's not supposed to be here. And so while they're in the end, it was told to the king of Jer Jericho, number, verse number two, behold, men of Israel, isn't that interesting? They even know who they are. Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. They've already been made. And so the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, sent her a message saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Now again, I want you to think about this. These two spies have come into her house. She has received them. You know, maybe, you know, you know, maybe at first they just kind of came in as customers, but she knows who they are now. Everybody seems to know who they are, including the king. And the king has now sent word to her, I know that you've got spies in your house. I need you to turn them over to me. You, know, you, need, to, you need to give them up. So she's already found out. And that means that she is either going to be labeled a patriot or an accomplice, a patriot or a collaborator. Which is it going to be? But the woman had taken the two men, the woman being Rahab, verse 4, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax, and there, they, there she had laid in order, uh, there, that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now I love this little scene here. 
the guys, come, you know, the, the soldiers come, come to the end. She's gotten word of it. Somebody has tipped her off that the police, the secret police, are coming. So she has hidden them under straw up on the roof. And then, you know, they come to the door, they knock, and they say, where are these spies of Israel that we've heard about? And at this point, this is when the comedy writers take over. Because it's like, all of a sudden, it's like the Three Stooges. It's like, and again, I love it in this picture, there are three of them. It's the Three Stooges are the ones who show up. Because she says, oh, you know what? They're right over there. Oh, look, there they go, there they go. If you catch them, I love it. If you catch them before they get out of the gate, you've got them. And they're like, oh, what, what? And they just start jogging. I mean, you can, I mean, it's almost like, again, Three Stooges or something like that. How, it's like, how stupid are these guys? It's not like, you know, in the later movies, like where the Gestapo shows up and they start asking really pointed questions and you get scared watching the movie. But what's she done at this point? Okay, so number one, she has received them. And that would be forgivable, except for now she's also done what? She's hidden them. She's lied about them. And she's about to do something else in a moment. So she is providing aid and comfort to the enemy at this point. Now again, why is this a bad thing? I mean, these are men of Israel. There may have been men from Syria in that end. There may have been men from Babylon in that end. There may have been men from, you know, from, you know, from uh, Philistines, from the coast in that end. Why are these men of Israel under particular notice? What's been happening for the last 40 years? The Israelites have been marching against and defeating every other kingdom in the Transjordan, on the other side of the Jordan. They have been fighting, wiping out. And, you know, if you're on, if you're on the losing side, they would say committing genocide on the other side of the Jordan. And if you go back and you look at this, you look at this, you know, this slide here. Oops, excuse me, going the wrong way. If you look at this slide here, what's between Jericho and Israel? I mean, the Israelite camp. What is that? Jordan River. What's the name of this mountain range? I'm sorry, there isn't one there. Why about this one? There's not one there either. What, what does that mean? Got a pretty clear view here. And I'm not saying that, you know, that they could see it with binoculars or that you could just see it from Jericho. But there's nothing really obstructing their view or their knowledge that there is a massive army. If you're in Jericho, you might even call it a massive horde of invaders sitting on just the other side of the river. And these, these raiders, these, these hapiru, these former slaves from Egypt, they broke out of Egypt... Their God laid plagues all over Egypt, killed the firstborn, wiped out the Pharaoh's army. And then they came through, killed Sihon and Og and Balak, all these other local kings that we thought were pretty tough. And they've wiped out Amorites and Moabites and Ammonites. I mean, just nation after nation, tribe after tribe has fallen under the spear of these people and their God. Oh my gosh, their God, he's like, this, he's like no other God. I mean, they go out and their God actually does fight for them. It's not like every now and then their God picks them up a victory. It's like every time they go out, their God just wipes out the enemy. You know, you know let, these other, let, the, let these Philistines in. 
Let these other Canaanites in. Let the Jebusites in. Let the Hittites in. Not the Israelites. If any Israelites show up, these are the guys over here. I mean, these are, these are the Mongols. <laughs> these are the Visigoths. These are the Huns. And they are on our doorstep. What kind of defensive posture do you think Jericho was in? Whatever their version of DEFCON 1 was, that's where they were. This is serious. They, you know, you know, we, we watch, you know, what we know about Jericho and the Battle of Jericho and all that kind of stuff is always portrayed like in Veggie Tales and, um, and cartoons and on flannel graphs and stuff like that. But, but what if you're in Jericho? What if you are a Jerichoite and you see the armies of Israel massed, hundreds of thousands, a swarm, a horde, a zombie apocalypse across the river. This is what they were seeing. And it was not just the leaders, it was not just the king, it was not just the soldiers. Everybody saw this, including Rahab. I mean, she, I mean, she probably was one of the best informed people of the city for the same reason that the, uh, that the spies came, into her, you know, came to her establishment. Because people talk in a bar. She heard the chatter of the soldiers on the walls. She heard the chatter of the other travelers who came in. She had heard the, ch the chatter of people who told the stories of what had happened to Og and Sihon. And, and, and Balak and their people. She knew what was going on. And so she took a look at the situation and she decided to make her own play. So what really happened? She lied to the, she lied to the soldiers and said, oh, well, they've run. Here's what happened. Look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, before she, she came up to them on the roof, while they were getting hidden, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. That's an important sentence. I know that the fear of the Lord has given you, excuse me, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. What's, if you, as you look at your Bible, what's special about the way the, the word Lord is written? It's all caps. What does that mean? Anybody remember? Yeah, that means that, that, is, that, that means that what was in the original text is not a generic word like just simply the Lord. That means that what's written there is the proper name of God, the personal name of God, Yahweh, which devout Jews will not even say that, even though we know that that's probably a mispronunciation. They will not even say that. They see that, they see that word you know, spelled like that, and they say Adonai, which means the Lord or Lord. It's so sacred is the name of God to them. But here she says it. She says, she says, I know that Yahweh has given you this land. Not only, we, we don't need, it's not just that we know about you Israelites. We know the name of your God. And we know that your God, Yahweh, right now, he has proven to be stronger than all the gods of Egypt and all of the gods of Canaan. And right now, I love this, the fear of the Lord has fallen on us. The fear of you, because of them, has fallen on us. We see this and we're scared. 
We see this and we're terrified. We see this and we know this is real. Now it's fascinating too that, that this word fear comes up several times. That she is afraid for what's going to happen. She's afraid for what's going to happen to her family. She's afraid for what's going to happen to her city. She's afraid for what's going to happen to herself. But she sees and she's read the newspapers and she knows what's about to happen. And so she makes a calculation. And what is that? I would rather be on Yahweh's side than on the side of any other God. She may not think yet that they're false gods. She isn't quite there yet in her faith. But she knows that you've got to bet on this one. This is the one that you want to put your money on. This is the one you want to bet your life on. And you know, what, what would we call that the first step of? We would call that the first step of faith. And it's very easy for us to get cynical about Rahab and think, oh, well, she's just, she's just running the numbers and she's just kind of reading the tea leaves and she's calculating what her safest bet is. No, she's scared. And you know what she should be. Proverbs 9.10 says that the, that the beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. And y'all have heard me say this so many times, I don't even explain it anymore. Fear of the Lord means what? Taking God seriously. She and everybody in Jericho is looking out over the plains of Jericho, seeing this Israelite army, knowing what God has done from Egypt to the Jordan, and said, I'm going to take this God seriously. You know, I, I don't think, I, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that there are so many statistics out right now that say that um, there are lots and lots of people who are sort of abandoning religion. You know, kind of a, the, the, the category of people who believe in none or no organized religion or participate in no organized religion, it just keeps growing and growing. Interestingly, however, the, people, the, the number of people who believe in in spiritual things, in, you know, in religion, a higher power, all these kinds of things, that, that's, sort of, that's pretty steady. You know, people, people have not given up their belief in the supernatural. What they've stopped doing is giving up any belief in any specific creed. They're kind of like Jericho. They kind of, in general, believe. You know, they, we believe there are lots of different gods, lots of different powers. You've got your God, you've got your truth, I've got mine, it's all that sort of thing. But now they're faced with a real God who's got real power and is a real threat if they are not in line with him. And she says, I'm afraid. I take this God seriously. That's one of the biggest problems of our culture right now. Not that people don't believe in God, they just don't take him seriously. They believe in a higher power, but that's not going to change what I do this afternoon. It's not going to change what I do in my business dealings. That's not going to change what I do this weekend when I'm out with my friends. That's not going to change the way I treat people. Why should, I, I mean, yeah, sure, there's a God, but I don't have to take him seriously. At least not right now. Beloved, we are sinners. And I do agree. Right now, as we read this story, Rahab has a foxhole faith. And so does every single one of us. Every person who has a genuine faith does so because they realize that we stand before a holy God. And if we do not take him seriously, we are doomed. What does Hebrews chapter 2 says? Do not, do not let your faith slip away, drift away. Take it seriously. Take him seriously. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, God is love, but God is also holy, holy, holy. And God is patient and long-suffering, but God will not be mocked. God will be obeyed. And if we do not take that seriously, then we will have Jericho moments in our lives. We'll get to that in, in, in future episodes. But it is not wrong, and there's nothing cynical about saying at this point that Rahab is coming to faith. What is faith? It's when you accept the reality of God, and you accept the reality of His claim and His power in your life. And she has done that. I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has not just any God, this God, has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us and, all the, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you just devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, for Yahweh your God, He is God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath. Now then, now here's the, here's the second part of faith. Not only does she take Him seriously, but look at this next word. Now then, please. Not, I demand, or here's what I'm going to do for you. Notice, she doesn't start making a deal with them. She says, please. Please swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Have you ever actually read Luther's 99 theses? Everybody talks about it, but very few people actually ever read it. You know what? It's 99 propositions about one thing. That one thing is repentance. It's about that real faith comes when we realize that we stand face to face, face to face before a holy God. Not before a collection of men, not before a church, not before our own record, but we stand face to face before a holy God and we surrender ourselves to him. That is the direct connection we have with God. And that's exactly what Rahab is doing. She's saying, I see the power, the reality of this God. Please have mercy. That is the beginning of repentance. And repentance is the beginning of the manifestation of faith. I know that the Lord has given you this land. How did she know that? I guarantee you that the king, I guarantee you that the soldiers of Jericho were kind of, they, they, were, they were looking at this like, okay, we've got our walls, we've got our army, we're prepared, we're the biggest, baddest city in the area, we've been we're one of the oldest occupied cities or areas in this region, we've been around for a while, we're, we, we were around 20 years ago, we're going to be around 20 years from now. You think, think, think any of that was going on? And what did she say? No, I know. I know that your God, I know that Yahweh has given this land into your hands. In the palace, they were preparing to fight God. On the walls of Jericho, they were preparing to fight God. What did she do? She surrendered. Not an arrow has been launched, 
Not a boulder has been thrown, not a sword has been unsheathed, and yet I know that he has already won. Have mercy on me and my family. Rahab's testimony is followed up by her plea, her repentance, her petition. Save me. You know, it's, um, Paul, help me out with a reference here. It's a terrible thing to be in the, hands of the, in the hands of an angry God. Holy God. Is that from Ecclesiastes? Is that something we read just last week? I can't remember. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the it, there's a passage that's a terrible thing to be in the hands of an angry God, to be in the hands of a... a Hebrews, thank you. I'm, I'm reading all these things at the same time. Um, but it's also a wonderful thing to be in the hands of a loving God, and we'll get to that in just a second, too. But she's taking him seriously. And so she says, please, do this. Now, listen to what the Hebrew spies say to her. The response from the Hebrew spies is this. They say, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this, if you not tell this business of ours, in other words, you don't give us up, then when our Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. That's it. You don't give us up. And when the army comes, when the Lord comes, we will deal kindly with you. It's just a promise. It's just a promise. What has she done for him so for them so far? She has taken them in, given them aid and comfort. She has hidden them. She has lied for them. And she's about to help them escape. All based on the promise. Nothing more than a promise from a junior grade, you know, possibly a junior officer listed man, we don't know, but a spy. All based on the promise, who frankly is probably getting pretty scared and wants to get out of the city, is willing to say anything at this point. If you, let, if you help us escape, rather than turn us in, because that was her other alternative, you help us escape, we'll make sure that you're taken care of. We'll make sure that God and the people deal kindly with you. But all she's got is a promise. Promise of a junior level operative. You know, that's what we go by as a promise. Look at what happens next. Then she let them, this is great. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. For her house was built into the city wall. So that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you. And hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours. Um, with this oath, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord. I can the one. I guess she, they were climbing down on the scarlet cord or something. You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is in with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, if you give us up, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So again, what's happening here? She's helping them escape. She says, all she's got, here's what I've done for you. 
I've taken you in, I've lied for you, I've hidden you, now I'm helping you escape. I'm depending on your mercy. And what does he say? Here's, here's my promise, here's my guarantee. He says, as long as you don't give us up, as long as you don't turn on us, then we will, you know, then, then when the time comes, you and your family will be saved. But what you have to do is you have to put this red cord, you have to put this red rope outside of your window, and anyone in that house will be protected. I mean, the metaphor is just too rich not to, to pass up. She's literally hanging her entire life by a thread, a red thread. But we also see a lot of rich symbolism here. That red thread, you know, one of the things that, that not only commentators, but you know, probably was in the mind of these guys is that, you know, what was the, what was the symbol of, uh, for the angel of the Lord? What was the, the, the sign of the angel of the Lord to pass over the, the houses, the blood of the lamb over the door? The red blood of the lamb over the door. The red hanging out of the window. The sign. You know, what's our sign? You know, baptism isn't something we do in secret because baptism is something that is a public sign of, of what we believe. A public testimony of who we are. A public confession of faith. You know, a red, you know it wasn't like scratch a secret code where nobody will see it. There's not going to be a drop site somewhere. You're going to hang a red cord out of your window where everybody can see it, even a passing army. You're hanging it outside of your wall. I mean, I'm sorry, that's... That, who else is going to see that, maybe? Maybe the people in Jericho, maybe the guards on the wall. Maybe that's a signal. Maybe we've been betrayed. This is still a dangerous thing. But her whole life is now dependent on this promise. You know, I don't know how many of you ever played like uh, played football or you know or, or did anything like that. I remember my coach in in, in uh, high school saying that when you throw a pass, only three things can happen to it, and two of them are bad. <laughs> you know, it gets it's incomplete, it's intercepted, or it gets caught. You know, consider Rahab's position: three things could happen here, and two of them are bad. One, somehow for some reason. The spies do not fulfill their promise. You know, they get caught. She gets, you know, she gets arrested and killed. Or two, they just betray her or forget. They get back to the, they get back to the camp and they just forget about her. Or they think, I can't believe that, you know, that chick believed us and she, uh, you know, and, and, and let us go, you know, sucker. Or three, they actually fulfill their promise. Two of those end in, in her death. Either she's killed by the Israelites or she's killed by the, by the people of Jericho. Her whole life is, is suspended on this promise. And yet she still has faith. So, I love what she says too. Look, look at the wording. You're going to go out, but don't go there for three days. Don't go back to the camp for three days. Why is that? Because the patrols are out there. Don't go straight back, though you'll be found. But again, three days. She, say, she seals her own death warrant and knows it's going to be at least three days before anything happens. Maybe longer. That's, that's, just, that's just how long. She has no idea when the Israelites might possibly come across the Jordan. But, but think about the connection between that and the crucifixion and Easter. Jesus died. He was horribly crucified by Roman soldiers. 
And they didn't even know they were waiting. They should have if they paid attention because he said he was going to rise from the grave. But they saw him go. They saw him die. And then they were just, I don't know, waiting, hiding, living in fear. Rahab lets these guys down out of her window. And from that point on, she's waiting, hiding, living in fear. Every time the city gate opens and a patrol comes back, she wonders, what if they found them? What if they tortured them? What if they know my name and the name of my family? I mean, isn't that the way God is sometimes? We trust Him, but we don't know anything for a while. We pray, but we don't know anything for a while. We have to wait. There's that waiting period. I think it just, I mean, there, there are no accidents. Three days, three days, the red cord. And this is, this is a story that, that God, he, he is telling us so many things. And she based this all, look at verse 21, according to your words, so be it. I got nothing but your promise. I got nothing but your word. You know, none of us saw Jesus Christ crucified. None of us saw him raised from the tomb. All we have to go by is his word. Do we believe his word? According to your word, I bet my whole life on that word. And that word is certainly reinforced by the Holy Spirit, but that's all, it's all based on a promise. The crimson cord, the Passover. I mean, all of it was based on a promise of God that either he would keep or he wouldn't. And so the spies get back to the camp. And uh, spoiler alert, um, y'all know what happens after that, right? They do come back. <laughs> uh, they do make it back to the camp. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want you to, you know, I want you to think about, you know, here we have two spy stories. One ends in failure, Kadesh Barnea. This one will eventually end in victory. But there's just so many deeper connections between these two stories. You know, as we, especially as we think about not just the story of Jericho, but as we think about the story of Rahab herself, because she is really an important figure. Um, first of all, Rahab is a character who goes from prostitute to heroine. And it's important that we actually pay attention to that little detail. She was not, as some pious commentators and scholars through the ages have, have wanted to reduce it, she, she was not just uh, um, an innkeeper. She was not running just like an Airbnb. She was a prostitute. The word in Hebrew is zuna, and it means harlot. The word in Greek, when it refers back to her in the Old Testament, is porneia. Ever heard the word porn used before? Pornography, por yeah, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The point is, she is exactly what the Bible, she was exactly what the Bible said she was. She was not some misunderstood, Blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. We, you know, we don't know her backstory. I'm sure it is tragic. But over the years, people have tried to sort of whitewash her past because she ended up being a good person. And, you know, what we need to understand is that the story of Rahab is a story of God's grace, not a story about a person, a good person, who receives salvation. In other words, it's a story about somebody like us, a person with a past, a person 
who did not know God. A person who maybe didn't even, who, well, in her case, certainly didn't grow up in church, didn't grow up in, you know, in, in, a, in a pious Jewish family, didn't have any of those connections, was making her way the best way that she knew in the world. And here she was. God used her. She was a harlot. And yet God took all of that and he used it for her purposes. I mean, consider, if she wasn't a harlot, she wouldn't have been running the, the inn. She wouldn't have been running the, the house of ill repute. I mean, these connections are, are, too, are too important to miss. But she is somebody that reminds us that no matter what our past is, our past is never bigger than God's destiny for us. Let's look at the faith of Rahab for a second. First of all, Rahab's entire faith is based on, a, first of all, on, on fear, the fear of the Lord, and a promise. It starts because she takes God seriously. Oh, y'all, I'm not nearly as interested in getting people to believe there's a God. I, most, I think a lot of people do believe that there's a God or a higher power. What I want is for people to take Him seriously. You know, I, I know people, people regurgitate all the time to me. God is love. Great. But do you believe God is real? Because you don't believe God is real, it doesn't matter if God is love or hate or mischief or whatever it is. Is God real? Do you take God seriously? And based on that, are you willing to bet your life on Him? Are you willing to take faith, put your trust in His promise? Because her faith was not just based on fear, it was based on a promise. God is going to take care of you. I mean, again, look at, look at this for a second. Um, that's not that. Look at this for a second. Where was Rahab's house? It was built where? Into the wall. Why was it built into the wall? Because, well, number one, I mean, because then you reduce 25% of your construction costs. The, city's already, the city of Jericho already built me one wall. I'll just build the other three. Okay? Why didn't the city care? If there was a, you know, a house of ill repute built into the wall. Because that adds a human buffer to the stone buffer. We don't care if those people get killed. You know, that's, you know, let, the, let the Israelites waste time killing them before they get to us. There was no, I mean, there was no privilege in that. But, but I want you, I mean, and I want you to consider this promise. You know, the, the Israelites spies said to do what? Said, when, you know, when the army comes, bring all of your people, all your family, everybody you love, you bring them into this house, which is part of the wall. Now, she didn't know, maybe they didn't know, but what was going to happen at Jericho? <laughs> the walls were going to come a-tumbling down, if the song's right, yeah. We all know from Sunday school, the walls came tumbling down, except... Which wall? Hers. I mean, I want you to consider that. The entire city is leveled except for Rahab, Rahab's house. There it is. With the blood of, you know, with the, the blood of the lamb, the red cord, the blood of Jesus protecting it. A visible sign for everybody to see. Everything else collapses. But she had to take, she had to take faith in that. It was born of desperation. It was born from the heart of a sinner. 
C.S. Lewis used to say, I would rather sit with, uh, I would rather sit with the tart in the back of the church than the prude in the front. Why? Because the tart in the back of the church knows what she has been forgiven of, and the prude in the front thinks that they deserve everything that God's going to give them. Yeah. What did Jesus say? Who appreciates forgiveness more, the one who's been forgiven much or the one who's been forgiven little? Rahab proves that God's future for us is stronger than our past, whatever it may be. But I also want you to consider this. Why is Rahab even mentioned? Why is this story even brought up? It's really kind of a minor story, isn't it? God's already promised to give them the land. Whatever, whatever tactical information those spies brought back was probably pretty marginal. Okay, there's a great big flat stretch of land between here and Jericho. We're going to cross a river. They've got walls. We know that, they've, that, we know that it's full of store, uh, soldiers. They're ready for us. And, oh yeah, by the way, God's already told us that we'll win this victory no matter what. What, what new information was there to be picked up? Had the spies died in that desert on the plains of, Je of Jericho, would that have changed the battle plan one bit? No. So why is this story so important? It wasn't because the spies got this crucial information back to Jericho. We don't even know what they told Joshua. The point of this story is not to show how Joshua cleverly prepared to go into Jericho. It's to introduce Rahab. The story is not about what Rahab did, it's about who she was. Because who Rahab was, well, let's take a look. Where do we learn about Rahab? We look, well, 1131 of Hebrews, she's, she's cited as a heroine of faith. But more importantly, in Matthew's genealogy, she's one of the few women mentioned in the ancestry of Jesus. And look at some of the others who were, you know, Tamar, who was raped, Ruth, a Moabitess, the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba, an adulteress. I mean, all of these women you know, had a past. All these women had, a, you know, had, had shame, if not, you know, if not guilt as well. And, you know, and, and that being said, so did all the guys in that list too. <laughs> Please understand that. So every single one of those guys had a past, too. But what does it say more importantly? It says that God had a plan for her way beyond this particular military campaign. God knew Rahab not just before the Battle of Jericho. He knew her from the creation and the foundation of the world. Rahab is a woman of eternal significance. Now, do you think when she was a little girl, she thought her life mattered? Do you think when she was a teenager, she thought her life mattered? Do you think when she sold herself to men for money, she thought her life mattered? Do you think anybody ever told her that she mattered? No. Not until God did. And we see that in the Bible, God had an eternal purpose for her. And anybody 
who thinks that they don't matter. I want you to remember that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. He has a place for you at His table. He has a position for you on His team. You are no accident. You are not worthless. And your past is not greater than His destiny for you. And so we see that, that Rahab is not a character of coincidence. She is a character of destiny. And so are you. She also becomes a representative of hope for the Gentiles. James says this, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? You know, remember what they said about Abraham? His faith was accounted to him as righteousness. Rahab's faith was accounted to her as righteousness. I mean, this, is, this is important stuff here. And so as we look at Rahab's ethics, you know, everybody who ever makes a big deal about Rahab's past and tries to whitewash it and stuff like that is totally out of sync with the Bible. The Bible cares not one iota about Rahab's past because of God's future for her. That's not, that's not saying it was a good past. It's not encouraging anybody. People try to make a big deal about her lying. The fact she lied to the spies, or excuse me, lied to the secret police, and that somehow that's an ethical failure. You know how much the Bible says about her lying? Nothing. Doesn't mean that lying is okay. Doesn't mean that dishonesty is okay. Doesn't mean anything like that. But do not miss the forest for the trees. This is not a movie about legal uh, movie. This is not a, well, it'd be a great movie. This is not a, a story about legalism and things like that. This is a story about God's plan for somebody that nobody else counted. Uh, incidentally, other things. Um, uh, how else is she remembered? Um, Jewish literature remembers her as one of the account as top four beautiful women in history. I don't know who the other three were, and I'm not sure who was ranking those, but at some point rabbinical, rabbinical literature in the Middle Ages said that she was one of the four most beautiful women in history. Um, she, you know, was one of the ancestors of Jesus. And most of all, I think she's remembered for two things, her courage and her generosity. Again, she took them in. She lied for them. She hid them. She helped them escape. All because she took God seriously. What if we took God that seriously? I'm not saying to lie and hide and do that sort of thing. But what if we took God seriously when he commands us to do something, when we understand who he is? Look at that, what that did in terms of her generous, generosity. Look what it did for her courage. In the end, this story is about the fact that God is in the business of saving sinners. To most people, Rahab was nothing. But to God, her soul was valuable. Who she was was valuable. Her past he used, but her future was what he wanted. He loved her from creation, and even in the middle of all of her sin, he chose to save her. From the beginning of the world, he knew that she would be in the line, the genetic line of her son, of his son. And if he knew her that well, he also knows all of us that well, too. Finally, though, as we see... 
Jesus hanging out with Matthew, other tax collectors and sinners, we see him hanging out more frequently with the people of his great 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 grandmother than the people who he said he should be hanging out with. And so we see that whatever those whatever it was that God put in the in her, he also very much very strongly put in that human part of Jesus. So again, Rahab is important. Yes, for what she did, but more important for what she was. And I believe that the reason that this story is in the Bible is to introduce us to her so that you will get to know her. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's amazing how a spy can infiltrate, sneak in, and, and change things without us even knowing it. That's kind of the way the story of Rahab works. She is a spy who gets into our heads, gets into our hearts, and begins to work her way into our spirit through our memories to remind us that we have to take you seriously, to throw ourselves at your mercy, and to respond with courage and generosity to all who need us. Lord, help us to remember that what we see in Rahab, we, we also see so prominently in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to model ourselves after him and to learn from her. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.